0: You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode.
1: And what we're going to be looking at is the prophetic unveiling of the historical events from the last book of the Bible, Revelation through the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, Armageddon and the setting up of the kingdom. And we're gonna do that over the course of four nights. And it's gonna be great. These are great prophetic things in the Bible. These are fantastic things that God is going to share for us. This is great for our faith, it's exciting and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Now, I've got basically two objectives I wanna share in these four series of talks. First of all, I wanna see I want to show to you how God clearly has laid history out. Nothing is according to chance in God's eternal plan. He's got it all laid out and everything, the nations, they're all marching towards the eventual return of his son. We can have confidence in that. God is in control and because we've got confidence that the world is heading towards the return of Christ, we can have confidence in God's word, in his Bible, what he said and the promises and the hope of salvation. That's the first objective I wanted to see. God is in control. And the second thing that I want us to learn and to understand an objective is that 75% of these classes are going to be taken from the book of Revelation. And I know what it's like when you get to the readings or you do a reading from Revelation, you think, what on earth is that about? Revelation is a daunting book, isn't it? You think, what is going on here? And sometimes we might feel that we want to skip over it or perhaps ignore it or just leave it. But that final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, was given to us by Jesus Christ, to his servants, and we can understand the things that are written in there. They're exciting things. They're great things. So what I want us to do... I'm not going to be going to enormous detail of every single sign and symbol. What my um, goal and objective is to lay the framework, give you overall picture of some of the chapters and the themes, almost like the scaffolding around the book so that when you start to approach the book for yourself, you can feel confident, you know where you are, you can start to build and look deeper and search out because you know the general idea of where we're heading. I, for me personally, i found that, very, very helpful so that I can turn up Revelation chapter 6. Oh, yeah, I know where I am. Revelation 12, yeah, I know what this is about. Revelation 9, yeah, I've got a general idea about that. I know where I'm going. I know where we're headed. It's all not a great big mystery and we can build on our levels of understanding of Revelation because it's a fantastic book. It's a great book. So if you come across to uh, Revelation chapter 1, at the end of the first century, we're told from 2 Timothy and other places, the believers are still very much a minority. And Timothy talks about some of the persecutions which happened on on the ecclesia, on the believers. Like for example, in Rome, we know of the mad emperor Nero who burnt down his own city and blamed it on the Christians and sort of persecution started to roll through the empire. Persecutions which took the life of the apostles Peter. And Paul and we know also that as we get to the end sort of of the uh, the first century in the 60s and the 70s a great Jewish revolt starts in the land of Israel and Judah which culminates with the Romans coming through and destroying Jerusalem and scattering all the Jews throughout the land and the Ecclesia is forced to flee to Egypt and up into Asia Minor and we get to the end of the first century there's only one Apostle left And that's John. One apostle left and that's John. And poor John, he's been taken prisoner in the reign of the Emperor Domitian and he's been put on a prison island off the coast of modern-day Turkey on a little island called Patmos. And he's imprisoned in that time, this old man, this old prophet, the last of the Apostles, and he's wondering to himself, when is our Lord going to return? When's he going to come back? It was promised under the Olivet Prophecy that after Jerusalem was to be destroyed by the Romans, it seemed like it wouldn't be long before Jesus Christ returned again. When is that coming? And so John, in John and Revelation chapter 1, he receives a vision that is gonna help him to answer some of these questions. So let's go across to Revelation chapter one and we're gonna be taking small steps to understand the book of Revelation. So Revelation one verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Now that word there revelation is the Greek word apocalypse you might have heard that word before apocalypse it's just the English translation we have that is the revelation it means the unfolding it means the revealing and this is the revealing that Jesus Christ has which God gave to him and he is showing it to his servants of the things that must come to pass now there's an important thing here in verse 1 it says and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. So that means within the book of Revelation, there's gonna be symbols. So when we get, and just start reading through Revelation, you're gonna notice all sorts of crazy kind of symbols. Beasts, elders, lambs with horns and eyes, horses with riders and swords and flame and lightning and mountains thrown into the sea. You're going to see seas that are thickened with blood. You can see dragons with seven heads wanting to eat babies, like we'll see tonight. You're going to see locusts with the head of lions, scorpions, a great whore, a chaste virgin, a terrible beast, which John struggles to understand. And these are all symbols, and they're all signs. Now, that's really important. They're symbols, and they're signs. They're things which can be understood by God's servants. That's really important. These are symbols and they're signs. Now, if you come across to uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, this is a summary of the book. This is a really important verse. Revelation 1 verse 19. This is the summary of the book. So in this initial vision, Jesus says to John, John, Write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. There's three parts to the book of Revelation. This is important. Firstly, John, it's the things that you've seen. So that's the initial vision that John saw in chapter 1 of a glorified Christ. Secondly, he says, John, I want you to write down the things which are. Now that refers to the letters to the seven ecclesias scattered throughout Asia Minor. That's in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And the third part of the book is the things which shall be hereafter. And that's the events that start in Revelation 4 and go all the way through to the end of the book, the major part of the book. So that's quite important, isn't it? The things that predominantly are dealt with in Revelation are after John. They're after John. From AD 96, when John is in prison in Patmos, Onwards through to the return of Christ and the setting up of God's kingdom. The things which shall be hereafter. And importantly, John's going to be show those things from God's perspective. That's what the images of Revelation are all about. The things from God's perspective. Now, we're going to be looking at the things hereafter. From Revelation chapter 4 onwards. So let's flick across to Revelation chapter 4. So we go past the letters to the seven Ecclesias and we come across to Revelation chapter four. Now John is taken in a vision in verse one and he's taken up into heaven. And he sees an incredible scene before him of someone sitting on the throne of 24 elders, of beasts surrounding the throne. And as he's up onto that throne, What he comes across, one of the main characters he sees in chapter 5 as he's beholding that vision, is a lamb. And this lamb is symbolic of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just an ordinary lamb, as you see in chapter 5 and verse 6. It's got symbols attached to it. It's a lamb that has seven horns, that has seven eyes. And it's a lamb which has already been slain. It's symbolic of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this great lamb is in the midst of the throne. And what happens then is there is a scroll which is given to that lamb. And that scroll has got seven seals on it, which I've tried to illustrate up there on the, uh, behind me. It's got seven seals and no one is allowed to open that scroll because that scroll is the unveiling of history from 1896 when John lives all the way through the kingdom. It's all bound up there in that scroll. These are the things that are going to happen here after John. It's all written down and it's all in symbols in this scroll and there's only one person who can break open this seal. These seals to show us what's going to happen from your time, John, all the way through to the kingdom. And John says, I really want to see what's in that. I really want to see what's in it. And the angel says to him, John, there's only one person who's allowed to open that. And that's that lamb over there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he hands him that scroll. Now, from Revelation chapter 6 through to chapter 11, that scroll is opened bit by bit. Each seal is broken out and that scroll is opened up. Now, I've tried to demonstrate it and illustrate it there in a simple way for us to see the opening of that scroll. From Revelation chapter 6 onwards, the first seal is broken open and symbolically there's a white horse. The second one, a red horse. The third one, a black horse, symbolically comes out. The fourth seal, a pale horse, a green horse, then an altar, then an earthquake, and then etc. And so we get these seven seals, crack, crack, crack. They're all open. And the symbols are launching out of this scroll to show to John the things that have to come to pass. And when you get to the seventh seal, John's like, oh, good. Here we are, this is the end. This will be the kingdom. He cracks open the seventh seal. And then within the seventh seal seven angels step forward with trumpets and They're going to blow out seven times to announce seven periods of history And when it gets to the seventh trumpet come across to Revelation chapter 11 All right Revelation chapter 11 When we get to that seventh trumpet sounding it says verse 15 and the seventh angel sounded there was great voices in heaven saying, "'The kingdoms of this world "'are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, "'and he shall reign forever and ever.'" That's the establishment of the kingdom. John, it's all here in this scroll. Seven seals, and then the seventh seal, there are seven angels sounding their trumpets, and when you get to that seventh trumpet blowing, it's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. And so what John's been given from Revelation 6 to Revelation eleven is an overview of the political events leading up to the kingdom of God. So that's from 96 to whenever the kingdom set up. Nearly two thousand years of history is given to John, and that's fantastic. Now, with those, um, with those, with this scroll, there's three events which are like signposts on the way to the kingdom. They're, big enormous events and they are called, I'm sorry for the text jumbling up, they're the earthquakes of Revelation. Now I'd recommend you colour in these earthquakes that happen in Revelation in chapter 6 and 11 because they're major political events, major political events. When an earthquake hits it changes everything doesn't it? Buildings fall down, roads topple up, the contours of the land are changed. Nothing is the same again. And these are great political events which change everything. And there's going to be three of them. The first one is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. I'd recommend you find that and colour it in. Revelation 6, verse 12, the first earthquake. We're going to be looking at that tonight. The second earthquake is in Revelation chapter 11, verse 13. I'd recommend colouring that in as well. Because these are signposts, these are major events on the way to the kingdom of God. And the last earthquake is in that seventh trumpet in chapter 11 verse 19. And that's the greatest political event that's going to change the world forever. That's the setting up of the kingdom of God. So (laughs) i repeat again, please colour them in or made a note of them or something. Because they're great signposts on the way to the kingdom. You can't miss these huge, massive events. There's going to be two of them, and then there's going to be the kingdom of God. And John has had those rolled out in front of them. So tonight, what we are going to look at, we are going to look at the first six seals that are going to be cracked open. As history will start to unfold itself, till we get to the first big earthquake, which happens in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, in the time of the sixth seal. Very important. Now, these are exciting things. These are great things. I love to read the history and understand the history of these times because they're brilliant, and God maps it out perfectly. Now, we are helped in this time by a very famous book called Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. He's a very famous and accurate historian, who wrote of these times from about the first, second century through to the fall of Rome in 476. He wrote fantastic detailed history of the fall of the Roman Empire during that time. And he mapped out specific time periods which match exactly to what God predicted would happen in Revelation. It's fantastic that he did it, it's it's brilliant. Okay, so we're going to look at these four, briefly, we're going to look at these four first seals being cracked open in Revelation chapter 6. So the Lamb is given this great scroll. And in front of John, he starts to crack open the Lamb, cracks open each seal. And as he cracks open the first seal, symbolically, John sees this white horse that comes charging out with a man who has a crown and a bow in his hand. And it says there in chapter six, and verse two, that he went forth conquering and to conquer. And that's the time period of AD 96 from John's time to 183, about 90 years of peace and prosperity, which is signified by this white horse and this man going forth, conquer to conquer. It was, Gibbon describes it, the most happy and prosperous time in the Roman Empire when he had Trajan, Hadrian as emperor. Everything was stable, there was peace, and the gospel started to flourish. It started to push out towards Spain, down into Egypt, North Africa, even out to France and these places of Ephesus, Alexandrina, etc. The ecclesia started to grow and get bigger. They still were a minority in the Roman Empire but the truth and the gospel was prospering at that time. That was indicated in the first seal of that white horse. 90 years of peace and prosperity of the gospel conquering. Then the second seal is cracked open and they roll out another bit of the scroll. And out jumps in verse 6 a different horse. In chapter 6 and verse 3 and this time it's a red horse. And that signifies blood and death. And and it says there in verse 4 that the man on that horse, he could take peace away. And they could kill one another. And there was given to him a sword, a great sword. And that sword in the Greek, it's the word the makira. It's not a big broad sword like King Arthur had. It's a short little sword, like about this big. Something that the senators would hide in their toga. It's a sword or a dagger they would use for assassinating people and stabbing people like they did to Julius Caesar. And so this pictures the time from 183 to 211 where the assassins dagger started to rule and peace was taken away particularly amongst the Roman mobility as they started knifing each other during that difficult time. There was bloodshed and murder and civil unrest and then the third seal is cracked open and out comes a black gloomy looking horse who has a pair of balances that he's holding in his hand in verse 5 and those balances are used to measure out food and any time you have to measure out food and bread it shows that there's a shortage in the world and that's what was happening in that time in about 212 to 235 under the emperor's character colour. The black horse shows distress. And because of the reckless extravagance of the emperors who lived at that time, they upped the taxation to compensate for their very um, luxurious lifestyle. And because of that, the commoners felt that that was a very difficult time from 212 to 235. This is all described in the history books. And then the fourth seal is cracked open. And this is the horse that no one wants to see. It's described there in verse 8 as a pale horse. And in the Greek, it means, that's the Greek word, chloros. It's like this sickly, deathly, green-coloured horse comes out. And the man who's sitting on that horse is described as death. And following after him is hell. And power is given to the fourth part of the earth. And look at them. They come to kill with the sword. Not only with the sword, but with hunger and with death. And this was a terrible, shocking time. It was about 70 years of history, from 235 to 303. We're told that there was great civil unrest, as it says, with the sword. 39 emperors came and went, mostly violently met their deaths there. It was a frightening and a horrible period of time. And this sword that's described, it's not a little dagger, a makira, this one's called a romphaia, it's a soldier's sword. And with those 39 emperors that were coming and going, there was civil war that was given over them. And the empire, particularly the fourth part of the empire, the Roman part suffered the most. People were killed, as it says, with hunger, and death. And because of the constant carnage that was going on with the emperors and the infighting, industry and agriculture was neglected. And so because of that, a terrible plague through, went through the empire. And particularly Rome was impacted the most. And they reckon in about, the, sorry, the historians say in about 250, 265, was such was the plague and the food shortages in that time, they say, they estimate, 5,000 people a day were dying in the city of Rome. It was a terrible, terrible time. Famine was tearing through it and this was this green, sickly, green, horrible horse with a rider called Death and hell was following behind. This was the period of history that was coming along from 2.35 through to 3.05. Horrible, horrible time. John, these are all the things that are happening. And then we get the fifth seal is cracked open. And in verse 9 of chapter 6, a different picture. We don't have the horses jumping out. We've got a different picture. This time what's put in front of us is the altar of souls. Verse 9, John says that he saw under the altar of souls them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they held And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Here we've got our brothers and sisters, believers, the saints, who have been slain for the word of God. And they're crying out, these slain, persecuted brothers and sisters during this time period, they're crying out to God and they say, How long? How long until you avenge us? How long? And this was a shocking period of time. Terrible period of time. From about AD 303 to 311, there was an emperor came to the throne whose name was Diocletian. And because of the calamitous time of the fourth seal... The Christians, of course, the believers, our brothers and sisters, were the scapegoats. They were blamed for a lot of the difficulty and disease and famine that came on the the empire, particularly the city of Rome. And so Diocletian, he made an edict, he made a law against the Christians. It was called the Edict Against Christians and it required them, they had to burn their Bibles. They had to destroy their places of assembly and they were banned from meeting together. And the consequences, if you did, were quite calamitous. They were terrible. And our own brothers and sisters were hauled off to Circus Maximus, where they were eaten by the lions, where they were burnt alive. There are terrible, terrible persecutions that happened this time. It's a well-documented time. It was short and sharp. But it was terrible on the believers, and so as the seal is opened under the altar, they're crying out to God, saying, "How long, avenge us, God? Avenge us from this!" And that's the end of the fifth seal. Now, when we get to the sixth seal, this is God's answer. There's a dramatic earthquake. A dramatic, dramatic, mighty earthquake, the first earthquake of Revelation, which takes place between 312 and 324. Now this earthquake is going to change the political landscape forever. It's going to totally change it. It would never be the same again. This is God's wrath and vengeance outworked because of the terrible persecutions on his people that happened under Diocletian. It says there in verse 12, And there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth. Verse 14. And the heaven rolled away as a scroll. When it's rolled together. It's a great picture of the heavens like a scroll. And you roll it up like. Roll, 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 roll. Rolls it up. Rolls it away. And verse 15. The kings of the earth. The great men. The rich men. Said to the mountains and to the rocks. "Fallen on us. And hide us. From the face of him that sits on the throne. This is a seismic event. A great shaking. The world's never going to be the same again. Now you'll notice. The earthquake takes place. Where there's the sun verse 14. The moon. The stars and the heavens. Now these are all symbols. The sun, the moon, the stars. They're all up in the heavens. And they are symbol. They are symbols. Of the political landscape, that's quite important to remember. The sun, the moon, the stars—they are symbols of the political landscape. The political rulers, the kings, the queens, the emperors, the administration—the political things are in the heavens, and it all takes place in the heavens. Now, I find this a really interesting and fascinating point of history. It's a—it's an interesting time, and it's an important time. Now. At the end of the end of the fifth seal period, Diocletian, as he's coming to the end of his reign, he was the emperor over the empire, the Roman Empire. This is well documented. And the Roman Empire was getting too big. It's hard to manage. So he says, I've got a great idea how we can help to manage this empire. Let's divide it into two zones of administration the eastern side and the western side. And Diocletian said, "I'll be the emperor in the East and I'm going to appoint an emperor in the West,
0: Maximian. We'll have two emperors, emperors and all that sort of stuff
1: because we don't have a clear succession plan. So what Diocletian set up was a clear line of succession. We're going to divide the empire into two and we're going to have two emperors. And these main emperors are going to be called Augustus, Diocletian and Maximian. Now we're going to have a clear line of succession. So when I retire, Galerius is going to be emperor or Augustus in the east, and over in the west, a man named Constantius, he is also going to do it. Now, to help these men become main emperors, or Augustus, we're going to give them a region to rule over, and we're going to call them Junior Caesars, or Caesars. So really, the empire was divided up into two, and then another two, so into four areas. This looks like a great succession plan, doesn't it? Two emperors, Augustus or main emperors, and then two junior emperors under them who are going to rule when they pass off the scene. It looks fantastic in theory. I was thinking of football clubs, AFL football clubs, when they try and set up a succession plan. It always is a disaster, isn't it? Anyway, as we'll see, this is exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. Looks good on paper and it works out to start with. So that's what he did. And here's a rough map of that and it's called the Tetrarchy for the Tetrarchy, when four emperors ruled and there's a clear line of succession. And if you actually go to Venice today and there's this famous statue in St. Mark's Basilica of the four emperors who were all ruling together in a lovely hug, because they're all in harmony. Diocletian, Maximian, and then their successors, they're all there, the Augusti and the Junior Emperors. Brilliant. And it did, it worked out well, it started out well. What happened was, unfortunately, Not unfortunately. In 305, Diocletian and Maximian said, right, we are going to retire. We all know what happens now. So they retired from being emperors. So our junior emperors now become the main emperors, which is Galerius and Constantius. And then they appoint two successors, of which one was called Galerius, Galerius, Valerius, Maximinus and Severus. Here's their successors. And you think, fantastic, the symbol, the system is going perfectly. Things were purring along. Now, unfortunately, in 306, one year after he's been made emperor, Constantius dies. And the rule of succession would be that Severus would now become emperor in the West. Now, the problem was. People looked at Severus, particularly the army said, we don't want this loser here. We've got someone much better, much better. And the power is in the army, isn't it? The power is in the army. So they said, we've got this man who was Constantius's son, whose name was Constantine. We said, we want him to be emperor in the West, not Severus. And this is when it all fell to pieces. It all fell to pieces, because now you've got someone out of the clear line of succession who says, I want to be emperor. And he's got the army behind him. He's got the legions behind him. And so what that started was from 306 to 324 was what was called the civil wars of the tetrarchy. 18 years of civil war where you've got these four groups of men battling it out, plus extras Fighting it out, and they didn't want to share the empire with the three other people or even with another person. They wanted sole rulership, and so they started fighting it out for 18 years. Now, this man Constantine, who was Constantine the Great, he was a fantastic soldier, a great politician. The men and the army loved him, and he swiftly came to power. Now, now, under his rule, and just before him, remember, there was still the persecution that was going on to the Christians. And Constantius and his son Constantine didn't agree with a lot of the persecution that was happening to the Christians. They didn't support it. And so what was happening was a lot of Christians were now coming and looking to Constantine for support and were supporting his political cause. Now, at that point in time, the Roman Empire was pagan. So that meant there was Half a million gods. The Romans had their gods, Jupiter, Mars, the Greeks had their gods, Zeus, God of War, Diana, Persians had their gods, Egyptians had their gods, everyone had gods. That was the way of the thing and they all had their temples and this was a well-established system. Pagan rites and gods and feasts and all sorts of orgies, all that sort of horrible despicable stuff. It was a pagan world. The Christians were a persecuted minority but they found a little bit of solace and support from Constantine and so the Christians started to support and throw their weight behind Constantine. It even got to the point when Christians, brothers and sisters, started to join his army. First in a trickle and then on mass you've got Christians fighting against the pagans and what happened was it turned into a war of Constantine's Christian army Against the pagans and what happened finally in 324 was Constantine prevailed and there was a very important political event hugely important political event the state religion was to be Christianity Paganism was out gone the Emperor himself Supported the Christians and was a Christian himself right so he supported that so that means This sort of minority now were in favour. So if you had a pagan temple, oh, that'd make a fantastic church. We'll chuck a crucifix up the top and we'll all go there for church. All the pagan festivals, ah, we'll get rid of that and we'll call them Christian ones from now on. If you were some sort of bishop or elder or had any authority within the church, you were elevated, you were given money, you were given all sorts of prestige and power. And now everyone said, oh, I'm not a pagan anymore. I'm a Christian. Sounds great. It was a disaster for the purity of the gospel. But this was a political earthquake, a massive shaking. The world would never be the same again after this. Paganism was gone. Christianity was there all by constant time. Now, this is an important event. This is an important slide. What we've seen... From Revelation chapter 6 to 11 is the political events unfolding towards the kingdom of God. Which went through the seals to that first earthquake in the sixth seal that we saw tonight. And the strand, that strand is going to go all the way through to the kingdom of God that's established in Revelation chapter 11. Now the book of Revelation, this is where we can get in a bit of a trap, if this doesn't make sense don't worry, just take it in anyway, (laughs) it'll make sense um, hopefully in the future one day. The book of Revelation is continuous unfolding of history but it is thematic, it goes through themes. So firstly from chapter 6 to chapter 11 is the theme of the political changes to the kingdom of God. Brilliant. That's that strand. It goes all the way through from John's day to the kingdom. Book done. Then when we open up Revelation chapter 12, we've got a new thematic strand which is going to start, as we'll see in a minute, at 3.12 and go all the way through to the end of Revelation chapter 16 and that is a theme of the historical events of the development of a falling away from the gospel and we'll see more details of that next week. So that's reasonably important. Can you see that point there? If not, that's okay. We can talk about it later. The key point I want to make is you can see that those two strands are on top of each other and they will deal with events happening at the same time. So if we come across to Revelation chapter 12, this strand from Revelation 12 to Revelation 16 is the strand of the development of a falling away. All the way its birth, its growth in Revelation 13 and then in Revelation 16 its final destruction. Follow it through. That's really important. I found that quite a breakthrough to help in understanding. So if I want to learn more about that um, that earthquake, I can go to Revelation chapter 12 and see it from a different perspective. Does that make sense? To everyone? Can I have one nod please? Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. I've ran that past dad he said yes that's okay so if that helps anyone (laughs) I was going to give Steve Hornhut a call but I didn't have the courage maybe (laughs) maybe tomorrow I'll give him a call about that and we'll talk about that with him so we come across to Revelation chapter 12 in 15 minutes we'll deal with this this is a fascinating chapter in Revelation chapter 12 I read this chapter and you think what on earth is going on in Revelation chapter 12 What's going on? So I just want to sketch out the picture and then we're going to look at the, the history of it. We come to Revelation chapter 12 and the first picture that we see is a woman who is pregnant with a child is up in the heavens. She's clothed with the sun. She's got the moon under her feet and she's got a crown of 12 stars. She's up there and she's got a baby that she's going to give birth to. She's with child and she's struggling to give birth to that child and likewise up in the heavens as well in verse 3 and 4 There's another great thing that's happening up in the heavens in the stars and it's a perfectly big enormous red dragon It's got seven heads. It's got ten horns It's got crowns on its heads, and that dragon is looking at that woman and it wants that baby As soon as that baby is going to be born it wants to grab and it wants to devour that baby and that baby Is a baby of destiny as we're told in verse 3 and 4 and sorry in verse 5 that man child the little male child is a baby of destiny which is called up to the throne and it's presented with a big rod iron bar of which it's going to rule all the nations and as soon as that baby is born the woman who's in the heavens is forced to flee and meanwhile there's to be a terrible war in heaven between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels and the dragon is going to lose and be defeated and it's going to be cast out of heaven and there's going to be much rejoicing and then we're told that the woman who was up in the heavens will flee but should be looked after by God. Now look at that and think what on earth is that talking about? What is that talking about in Revelation 12? You see what I mean about the the symbols? What fantastic symbols which are shown to us. What is that referring to? So I want to try and break this down and look at the history and the thematic themes, the thematic themes that are drawn out here in Revelation chapter 12. So first of all, the first symbol we have is this woman who is in heaven. Now, the woman in scripture is the chaste bride that is awaiting Marriage to Christ we're told of that in 2nd of Corinthians chapter 11 and in Ephesians chapter 5 We won't turn it up. The woman is the symbol of the believers of God's Ecclesia And immediately you can see The way the Bible presents it is the woman she is not in a good state She is first of all she's up in this she's got the moon under her feet. She's closed with the Sun She's got a crown of stars. She's in the political arena And she's with child now revelation is telling us this is not quite right this is not quite right first of all what is this woman doing pregnant she's supposed to be a chaste virgin waiting for Christ and this is I think a beautiful or a perfect description of the ecclesia and the believers at this time in the 300s just exactly as we're told in Acts 20, in Timothy, in 2nd of Thessalonians, there will be a falling away that people will start to go away from the pure doctrines in Christ to Gnosticism, Judaism, saved by works, Greek mythology. She is pregnant with all these different things. And what's she doing in the political arena? What are the believers doing there? Well, we know, don't we? Under the persecutions of Diocletian, the Ecclesia suffered terribly. And during that time and afterwards, the believers started to look in the political arena for their saviour and for vengeance. Some were crying out to God. The others said, we're going to take matters into our own hands. So they went into the political arena and they started to look for a saviour for a supporter, for a champion to their cause, and they found one in constant time. The believers should not be up in the political heavens. And there they were, seeking out their saviour in constant time. And so politically, they started to support his claims for the throne, even getting to the point where they started joining his armies and marching in his armies. Now that is the baby, that is the child that unfortunately the believers have got within them. That's the child that they've got, which is ready to be born. And that man child, which is born, that's Constantine the Great. The man who would rule with destiny. The man who would support them and look after them. And the official birth of Constantine, the official birth of that man was in 313, when he issued an edict of toleration against the Christians. You can't persecute them anymore. He was their champion. They had given birth to this political man who would be their saviour, the man child. Now up in the heavens watching this woman who's watching the believers is the great red dragon. Now that great red dragon is symbolic of the military power in Rome, the pagan Roman Empire. If you're taking notes, this dragon corresponds back to Daniel's fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. It's got seven heads, which are later described for us in Revelation 17. The crowns are on the heads. It is in the pagan Roman phase. And just as Constantine was come forward from the believers... The rest of the pagan Roman Empire are standing around and they want to defeat that, that baby. They do not want the Christian armies to fight against them, the pagans. And it says, just as the tale is drawing the other four sorry, the third part of the stars of heaven towards them, this pagan Roman empire is trying to consolidate the other emperors who had claims to the throne, the other three, and draw them in and said we need to consolidate our armies as pagan to fight against the Christians. And they want to destroy him almost immediately as he's born. Now, there's a key event in history. This is a key event that happened in 312. Constantine had been gathering his armies up in Gaul, up in France, and he'd been getting together and he had an army of 40,000 men. And he begins his march down to Rome in 312. And as he's marching down towards Rome, he comes and he's going to fight against one of the another claimant to the throne, Maxentius. And just outside of Rome is the River Tiber, and the main Roman road that crosses the River Tiber, coming into Rome, the Via. I'm going to get caught out. I was trying to impress you with my Latin, Via Flaminia. We all know that, obviously. It goes without saying. There's going to be a key battle between Constantine and his armies, supported by the Christians, and Constantius. Now, Constantine, he believed he was due for greatness. And in particular, the legend has it, on the eve of that battle with his legions around him, built up of predominantly Christians, he saw a vision on the eve of that battle where he was told in this sign conquer, and it was an X and a P. And in the Greek, the X and the P are the first two letters of Christos. He was told in that sign conquer. So he woke up in the morning, And he fully believed that his armies were now supported by Jesus Christ and he got all his soldiers to put a big X and a big P on their shields as they marched out into battle. He believed that Jesus Christ was fighting for him and they marched into battle. This was the Christian armies. Now that is a very famous, famous battle that was fought on the river Tiber. And that's a painting which was done in the 16th century which depicts Constantine, he's the one on the white horse, and then up in the heavens, those big fat babies, they're angels that are directing Constantine as he's fighting against the pagan Maxentius, Maxentius. And this is a key battle of which they fought on that thing, on that bridge. Maxentius was thrown off into the river and was drowned. His body was dragged out, decapitated, and then dragged through the streets of Rome. Constantine was born he was their victor this was a key moment and this would give him undisputed control of the western half of the empire now in chapter 5 as soon as that man, uh, chapter 12 verse 5 as soon as that man child is born he's thrust up to heavens but the woman who gave birth to him you notice verse 6 she flees we'll talk about the woman in a minute The baby is born, Constantine's born, he's thrust up with his big iron bar and he fights and he is the man. And the the woman who gave birth to him, she flees in verse 6. Now in verse 7 we have the war in heaven where we have Michael and his angels versus the great red dragon or the dragon and his angels. And that's the war of the Tetrarchy where the battles went from 306 to 324. 18 years they were slugging it out in the Roman Empire. Constantine's Christian armies, now he's styled as Michael, one like God. And he's fighting against the pagans and they're fighting against each other and it's in the political heavens for rule over the political realm of the Roman Empire. And we're told, verse nine, the great dragon, is cast out. Paganism is cast out and they prevailed no more. Now, this is what I find fascinating. This is so interesting. Look at this. Look at this in verse 10. This is the aftermath of this. In 324, in Adrianople, Constantine finally defeats the pagan Romans. Now, look at this. This is interesting. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. And you're reading this thing, what are you talking about? This isn't the kingdom of God. This can't be the kingdom of God. It can't be the kingdom of God. Because I know that later in the chapter, the woman who represents the believers is still persecuted and is forced to flee. So what are they talking about? Now this is it's a really sad reflection of the believers at the time. Now unfortunately the common bible teaching we have of a thousand year reign of Christ that was just considered the myth and legend and it was abandoned because the believers at the time they wanted their own christian kingdom on earth now they wanted it now they wanted to be in the political heavens they wanted to do that now so those misguided christians the ones who had been supporting constantine the ones who had been fighting in his armies and encouraging him, when they saw him prevail over paganism, the people who had persecuted them, they said, "This is the kingdom of God. This is everything we've wanted." And I put a picture up there of an influential man at the time whose name was Eusebius, who was a bishop of, um, bishop of Ephesus, and in his writings. They've found him praising Constantine and comparing him to Jesus Christ and the new Christian kingdom, the new Christian Roman Empire, they've compared it to the kingdom of God. They said this is the kingdom of God and this is exactly what's described for us in Revelation chapter 12. Is this the kingdom of God? Far from it. This is definitely not the kingdom of God. But to these misguided Christians at this time, this was everything they wanted. Rulership now. And when Constantine's in power, he sets up a new capital all the way over in the east in Constantinople. His mother, Helena, goes and travels throughout Judea Judea and the whole land, sets up all sorts of churches and relics and all sorts of rubbish. And this man here, Constantine, he started to preside over Christian councils and he started weighing in and debating and putting his power behind changes in doctrine. It was in 324, sorry, in 330, I think around that time, the Council of Nicaea, where they first started to formulise the doctrine of the Trinity. And this was the man supporting it. This is the false church. Now, briefly, if you just give me five minutes, the story continues with the woman. If you just flick over the page. The Christians, the false Christians, are rejoicing at their victory over paganism. But what's happened to the woman? The woman has fled and has been forced to flee to the wilderness. Now, here's something I found interesting, and this is backed by Steve Hornart, so we're okay with this one. The woman goes through three stages. Firstly, she's in the heavens, pregnant. The second phase that she goes through is when she flees to the wilderness and she's given the wings of a great eagle. And the third stage is the remnant of the woman's seed in verse 17 that keep the commandments of God. And this is the progression. So, what happens, history tells us, and I'll just go through it briefly, history tells us that once the woman had given birth to a child, she flees to the wilderness. Constantine is born and he comes to power. And within the Christian community at that time, there were a minority that started to stand up and say, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm just not sure whether this is right. I'm not sure whether we should be going into the political arena and supporting political candidates. I'm not sure we should be seeking vengeance from the pagans through political means. I'm not sure this is right. And the majority of the Christians said, hang on a minute, we've won this great victory with Constantine here, we don't have room for you. And they labelled them heretics and they started to expel them. And so they went, this is the second phase of the woman, she's forced to flee. People who speak up and object to what's happening with Constantine and him ruling, they're um, they're sort of labelled as heretics. People like the Donatists and the Novatines, Paulatines, all these other people, they are expelled and they're sent and they're forced to flee. And we're told in verse 13 that they're persecuted by the dragon. Now, it's not the red dragon, because the red dragon is the pagan Roman Empire. But the dragon, without the red bit, it's still the Roman Empire, but it is the Christian Roman Empire. It's the Christians themselves. Constantine's empire, he now wields the dragon of the military might of the Roman Empire. It's not pagan anymore. It's just changed allegiance to the Christians. And now that dragon starts to persecute the woman, the people who objectified him. And it says that God would look after these people with the wings of the empire, with the extremities of the empire out in North Africa, far away where they can't be touched. We're going to talk about them in Revelation 11 next week. And finally, we've got the third phase, the true believers, who are the offspring, who are part of those ones of that woman who has got the great wings, who are protected. So, that is the end of the seal period. It's a fantastic section of history. It's the first great earthquake, and there's two things to remember in this time period. Firstly, it's a great political change, massive political change. The world stopped being pagan and now became Christian. Massive political change, huge earthquake. And the second thing we saw in chapter 12 was, this is from God's perspective. How do the believers, how do they feature in that great earthquake? And this is the start of a falling away A formalising of a falling away where a group of people are leaving behind the true teachings of Christ and of the gospel and they're formally starting to become an entity as is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's all there and they're going to put in their head someone described as the man of sin and this is the theme that is going to be traced through from Revelation 12 to 13, 14, 15, 16. So... Thank you for your attention. If you've got any questions or comments, come and send me afterwards or if there's time, Andrew. But next week we're going to move from the seals
0: into the trumpet period and the second earthquake. Thank you.
1: that the Apostle John, the ancient prophet, the last remaining of the Apostles in the late first century was on the Isle of Patmos, imprisoned by the Emperor Domitian. And he received in chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. And he sent to John a series of visions. And those visions would be in symbols and in sign. And they were to show to John, we saw in verse 19 of chapter one, The things which shall be hereafter. The things hereafter. John was going to be shown the events from his time in AD 96 as they kept continuously unfolding towards the kingdom of God. A continuous stream of history from God's perspective was going to be presented to John in vision and sign right up to the kingdom of God on earth. And that vision started as we saw last week in Revelation chapter 4 where John was invited up into heaven. And as he was up in heaven, he witnessed the one on the throne who gave to the Lamb, to Jesus Christ, he gave him a scroll. And that scroll had seven seals on it. And that scroll, within that scroll, was, was be the events which would continuously unfurl to the King of God. And last week we saw... Jesus Christ in symbol cracked open those individual seals of the scroll and rolled out, and as he rolled out one seal, the events happened. And again, the events that would occur in the Roman Empire occurred and occurred again and again. And we saw from Revelation chapter six to Revelation chapter eleven is the political events unfolding that would lead up to the kingdom of God. He would go through the seals and then the trumpets. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and it would finish with the kingdom of God. And there's three important sort of landmarks on the way to the kingdom of God which are described as earthquakes. There's three earthquakes in Revelation. The first one we looked at last week, which is at the end of the seal period when there's a great political shaking in the earth. Earthquakes, particularly major earthquakes, are huge seismic events, aren't they? And they change the landscape of the land. Mountains are pushed up, valleys dip down, things are shifted this day and that way, and nothing is the same again. And that's what a political earthquake is. Things change, they're never the same again. And we saw it last week at the end of the seal period, in the sixth seal, the Roman Empire was changed from paganism to paganism. To Christianity, that's a huge event. That's a massive political event. Now, what we're going to look at this week, we're going to be looking at the trumpet period, leading up to the second earthquake. It's a large period of history, as you can see there, but that's going to be described for us. So, what we have, uh, sorry, at the end, um, at the end of our last period there, let's come across to Revelation chapter eight. The end of um, the sixth seal, we saw Constantine the Great was in power. Now, if you come across to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, the seventh seal is opened. And it says there in chapter 8 verse 1 that he opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. The end of Constantine's reign was a time of peace where John sat there in silence for half an hour in heaven. And there's a key event that's very important that happened at the end of Constantine's reign. When Constantine died in 337 AD, he gave his empire, the Roman Empire, over to his three sons. And I love this because he gave them the most imaginative names ever. Constantius II, Constantine II, and Constance. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and they all called them Con for short, right? That's the peak of my jokes for tonight, thank you. <laughs> so he divided the empire into three. He handed it to his three sons. Now, there was a obviously the far west, which was Gaul and Spain. In the center was Italy and North Africa, and then in the east, was the modern area of Turkey and sort of the Middle East today. Now that threefold succession didn't last long and it naturally drifted into the next 50 or 60 years into the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. But originally Constantine's idea was that the empire would be broken into three. So Revelation is going to talk about events which will only happen to a third of the empire at a time. And that's important to know. A third of the empire at the time. And in particular, it's going to be that central third of Italy, which is the western part of the Roman Empire, and the eastern third, which is to do with modern day Turkey and Greece. That's it, that's quite an important thing. So we're told there that once the seventh seal is opened, as that's cracked open within the seventh seal, there are then seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets are basically divided into groups of two. There's the first four trumpets which are sometimes called the wind trumpets which are in Revelation chapter 8 and they're going to be dealing with events that are going to be on the western third of the Roman empire. And then there is trumpets 5 and 6 which are sometimes called the woe trumpets which are going to deal with the eastern third of the empire. And in the sixth trumpet, there is an earthquake, another great landmark towards the kingdom of God. And once the sixth trumpet blows and finishes, then the seventh trumpet goes, and we know that that's when the greatest earthquake of all happens. The kingdom of God is established. Quite an important event. Now, we're going to work through tonight the trumpets, and in particular, the sixth trumpet, and the earthquake because these are the great landmarks on the road towards the kingdom of God and this second earthquake it only happened 240 years ago that's not that long ago 240 years ago and we are still feeling the effects of that today we are still feeling the political effects of that second earthquake today so we finished in the in the uh, in the 300s with Constantine, and and towards the end of the 300s, coming into the 400s, the Roman Empire was getting too big and too hard to control. Its borders were so vast, up in Britannia, across um, sort of Europe, as it spread across, it was getting very hard to manage. And there was a particular group of people in the forests of Germany and Austria and Poland who were the barbarians, the Goths the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, the Huns, and these people were hard to contain. And they were naturally kept out of the Roman Empire by the River Danube. And it came in the end of the late 400s that refugees who were fleeing from the Huns in the north started to come down and settle inside the Roman Empire. And this was a disaster For the western third of the Roman Empire. This was the beginning of the end of the western third of the Roman Empire. So we find that in chapter 8, stepping out of the seventh seal, the wind trumpets begin to sound. Now follow this along in your Bible in chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 7, the first wind trumpet sounds and it blows forth the judgments of God on the western third of the Roman Empire. Now that first trumpet signified The terrible calamities that came on the western third from Alaric the Visigoth from the years 405 to 410. And his armies marched through the top of northern Italy. They burnt and they pillaged and they plundered these wealthy, defenceless Italian cities. And they marched all the way down to Rome and they besieged Rome three times. And on the final time in 410, Rome, the great eternal city, was sacked and pillaged by these Visigoths who came through and took everything they can. The third part, it says, of the trees and the grass was burnt up. Then the second trumpet sounds. And the man who comes forward is Genseric the Vandal. And he was a pirate. And for about 20 years, he had a pirate fleet that was based in Spain and Gibraltar, which wreaked havoc on the Roman world, particularly the Western Third. And he was an Arian Christian, meaning he followed the teachings of Arius from Alexandrina, who did not believe in the divinity of Christ and he wreaked havoc on the Romans. They tried to wipe him out. They couldn't. He destroyed a third of their fleet and in 455 he sailed his pirate fleet up the Tiber into Rome and sacked the city again 45 years later. And my favourite, the third trumpet, if you're allowed to have a favourite barbarian, this is mine, Attila the Hun. We might have heard of this guy. He was a nightmare for the Romans. He was described In verse 10, as this great star falling down from heaven, the Hun, this Germanic, violent, angry people who you did not want to come across, who to the refined Romans, this man was an absolute nightmare. And for 19 years, he ruled and he sent military conquest and despair all through Italy. And historians have described the time of Attila the Hun everywhere People were in flight. Everywhere was depopulation, slaughter, slavery and despair. And for 70 years the Visigoths, the Vandals and the Huns repeatedly kept smashing and blowing down on the western third of the Roman Empire Till you get to verse 12. We have a very interesting event. Look at this in verse 12. The fourth angel sounded and the third part of the moon was smitten the third part sorry the third part of the sun was smitten the third part of the moon the third part of the stars so the third part of them was darkened and the day shone not for a third part of it and the night likewise now what is being described for us is an eclipse the sun did not shine its light the moon did not shine its light there is an eclipse of those powers now we know, don't we, from previously in Revelation, the sun, the moon and the stars are referring to powers. When they their light, they no longer have their influence anymore, they are eclipsed. And that's exactly what happened in the late 400s. In the late 400s, it was the Goths and the barbarians who were ruling the day, particularly in Italy. Now, there was a man sitting on the, on the throne in Rome, but he was there in name only. And the barbarians and the Goths decided that they wanted a greater share of the tax revenue, since they were the real power in control. And when they approached the Roman administration about this, they refused to comply. So because of that, a man named Odoacer came forward, kicked the Romans off the throne, and himself set himself up as ruler in Rome. And the Bible describes that as an eclipse. The Roman power cannot shine anymore. It is eclipsed. There is this big, dirty, hairy goth standing in the way. And his name was Odoacer. And that was in 476. And that's the date that historians they fix on as the date of the end of the western third of the Roman Empire is eclipsed. It's gone. That's the end. 476. It was a key date. God said... It's eclipsed. And so as we get there, the end of the wind trumpets in verse 13. To take a breath from that, John is just after witnessing the devastation of the Goths and then the eclipsing of that third of the empire. In verse 13 he says, And behold, John saw an eagle as it should be, flying through the midst of the heavens, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by the, the reason the voices of the trumpet of the three angels that are yet to sound. An, a, uh, an eagle starts flying through heaven and he's directing John's attention away from the western third, flying over to now to look at the eastern third of the Roman Empire. And he's saying to John, you thought those wind trumpets were bad with the Goths. I've still got three more trumpets to sound. They're going to be nothing compared to the Goths. Nothing compared to the Goths. And this is going to be, so now, as we enter into the woe trumpets, which is trumpets five and six, they're going to be directed on the eastern third of the Roman Empire, sometimes called the Byzantine Roman Empire. Now, I just want to put up this little summary slide, just to help um, to help get our bearings on these These woe trumpets. So, first of all, we have the fifth and the sixth trumpets, which are going to be directed on the Eastern Roman third. And as we're going to see in a minute, we're going to see that that Eastern Roman third, the Byzantine Empire, is going to be killed. It's going to be cut off. It's going to be stopped from Roman power. However, that's not the end of the sixth trumpet. Now, you'll notice, just turn across, if you've got it, to Revelation chapter 9, in Revelation chapter 9, just to help keep us on the path, John was given a start point and an end point to the trumpet. So, chapter 9 verse 1, the fifth angel sounded. And we know that the fifth angel finishes in verse 12 because it says, One woe is past, and behold, there comes two woes more hereafter. Now, in verse 13, it says... And the sixth angel started. So, that's the start of the sixth trumpet. Now, if you flick over the page to Revelation chapter 11, we're given in verse 14 the end point of the sixth trumpet. Verse 14. The second woe is passed, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. So, there's an important thing that happens here. There's two parts, a part A and a part B to the sixth trumpet. Part A of the sixth trumpet... Is going to end with the killing, as we'll see in a minute, of the eastern third of the Roman Empire. There's going to be a little break, a little breather for Revelation chapter 10, and then we're going to launch into part B of the sixth trumpet. And what's going to happen is we're going to switch back to the western third of the Roman Empire. Because remember, it wasn't killed. It wasn't slayed. It wasn't destroyed. It was just an eclipse, and just like there was an eclipse out in Western Australia, was it uh, last week, this week? It's a temporary measure. It's a temporary measure, and we're going to see that that eclipse is removed, and a Roman power or a power shines forth again, and that's detailed in the sixth trumpet, part B, in Revelation chapter 11, and the end of the sixth trumpet. There's going to be another earthquake. And then finally, the seventh trumpet is going to blow in Revelation chapter 11, which will be the kingdom of Christ. Now, I'm sorry if that was a bit laborious to work through, but I think it's great to get a bit of structure to know where we're going with these woe trumpets and how there's a break between them, because the sixth trumpet has got two parts to it, one in the east and then back over into the west. So, we come across to uh, now Revelation chapter 9, I want to deal briefly to build build through the story of the fifth and the sixth trumpet. So we come to to Revelation chapter 9, and it says that the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to a bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there rose smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and then verse 3 and out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth and unto them was given the power as great scorpions of the earth had power so what John saw in symbol was this great star falling down to the earth and that star is given a key it says unlock this pit or this abyss and once that's unlocked, there's this huge torrent of smoke that just starts ascending out to the heavens. And within that smoke is locusts, this thick cloud of locusts that have the sting of a scorpion. Now, interestingly, in verse nine, these uh, in chapter nine, these locusts are given specific details. All right, look at this in verse four of chapter nine. And to these locusts, it was commanded they hurt not the grass of the earth, neither green thing nor any tree. "...but only hurt the men who have not the seal of God in their foreheads." And these locusts, it says in verse 5, "...and it was given unto them that they should not kill, but they should torment." So the locusts were not allowed to kill. They weren't allowed to wipe out this eastern third of the Roman Empire. They were only allowed to torment them five months in verse 5, and then in verse 10, another five months, torment people at the time. Now, the great thing about Revelation, this is a perfect, this is a wonderful description of the rise of the Arab powers in the seventh and the eighth century AD. And that great star that was falling down from heaven, that could unlock the key, that's the rise of Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam. And it was through his new religion that he was able to unite the arabian people and through his influence and his successes that within 50 years the muslim conquests they swept up north towards modern day turkey and then out towards the east the bottom of north africa crossed over into spain and they made headways into europe and they almost got the way into italy that's how powerful and how strong these muslim conquests were And when they're described for us, in chapter 9, there's given a really funny description of what they're like. It says they were like locusts, but they were like horses in battle. They had tails like scorpions. They had a face like a man, hair like women, crowns on their head. And it says they had a tail that would sting just like a scorpion. And it would torment people. Now, apparently... If you're stung by a scorpion, it's a very intense, strong, really fiery sort of pain. But the poison from a scorpion, it won't kill you. It will torment you, just like these locusts would torment you, but it would then pass away. And these locusts had power for two periods of five months to swarm over and to cause all sorts of problems on the eastern third of the Roman Empire. Terrible times that they put on the Muslim and the Saracen conquests of the 5th and 8th centuries. Terrible times. And so in verse 12, that's one woe, John. But there's two woes to come afterwards. And this is where we see the sixth trumpet sounding in verse 13. And John says that he heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth trumpet six angels had the trumpet loose the four angels which are bound in the great river euphrates the four angels were loose which were prepared for a month and a day and a month and a year to slay the third part of men now there's four angels which are being held back And they're being held back by a rope, which is the river Euphrates, by that area. And these angels have been preparing, ready to be loosed. And once that sixth angel sounds, it's almost as if that rope, the river Euphrates, that area was snapped off and said, right, off you go, off you go. Launch into that eastern third of the Roman Empire. Now, while in the fifth trumpet, they were not allowed to kill, they weren't allowed to wipe out the eastern empire, in the sixth trumpet... Verse 15, they're to slay them, kill them, kill them. And so history tells us that there were four waves of these invaders that came through. The Seljuks, the Mongols, the Mamluks and the Ottomans just came wave after wave after wave of these great powers from the Far East would come and they'd be smashing repeatedly against the Eastern Third, the Byzantine Empire. And we're told, interestingly, isn't this fascinating, in verse 16, the number of their army of horsemen were 200,000,000. And we're given a description of what these look like. 200,000,000 hordes of these Mongols and Turks just kept coming and coming, all of them on horseback. And when John saw it in vision, he sees the body of a horse, which has a head of a lion, with a snake for the tail. And this creature is breathing out, as it says, fire and smoke and brimstone. He's breathing this out to destroy these people. And, and the great thing about Revelation, this is exactly what this time period was. It was during this time that for the first time people in Europe and European warfare started to utilise cannon warfare. Just like that lion, breathing smoke and fire and brimstone out of his mouth, this was some of the first times that cannon warfare was introduced. And it would culminate in 1453 when the Ottomans came and they took Constantinople. The fortress that is Constantinople. And they were going to slay that eastern third of the Roman Empire. These Muslim Ottomans came through and in 1453 they finally took Constantinople. Constantinople was the position of where it is surrounded by water with impregnable walls. It was impossible to take. People had tried 11 times to capture that city. They could not take it and at the end of the Ottomans. This man who was a 21-year-old named Mehmet II, he gathered an army of 80,000 men and marched them onto Constantinople on this dwindling Byzantine power. They only had 7,000 people in that city, and they managed to hold out for 53 days. And if it wasn't for, the biggest cannon which had ever been assembled and would fire against that wall. They finally broke through and smashed through into Constantinople. And that great Christian city that was founded by Constantine, which Justinian made beautiful with the Hagia Sophia, the beautiful dome churches, these Muslim hordes came racing in, and they savaged the city. And what was a wonderful Christian church, the Hagia Sophia. The cross was knocked off the top, and now it is a mosque where the Muslim prayers are heard, even to this day. And Constantinople became a Muslim time. And God's saying, I am slaying that third part of the Eastern Roman Empire. And that happened in 1453. The Ottomans finally came through and destroyed it. And that was the Ottoman Empire, which would last right up to the end of World War One in 1922, which we're going to talk about next week. Such was that Ottoman Empire. It lasted for a long time. Now, just to have a quick worry recap, because I gabble a little bit, I understand. These are the trumpets which are coming. The first four trumpets was God's punishment on the western third of the Roman Empire, which was eclipsed when the barbarians took over, temporarily took over. We then shifted over to the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments on the Eastern Roman Empire which was knocked out and now ruled by the Muslim Ottomans. So now we're going to move to Revelation chapter 11 and we're going to look at the sixth trumpet part B. Now remember the Eastern Empire finished, gone. It's now Muslim. So we shift over to the western third to see what's going to happen together. Now, I I have a particular love for Revelation chapter 11, I, I really love Revelation chapter 11 and the sixth trumpet because it's going to give some wonderful details leading up to the second earthquake and they're so specific about what God said would happen. They're so specific and you can see history falling perfectly into the mould of what God had to say. It's fantastic. It's It's a fantastic section. Now, I also understand that Revelation chapter 11, it can be very confusing. And when Dan read it tonight, I'm sure some of us were thinking, what on earth is that all about? I've got no idea what that is talking about. And it can be a tricky thing. Now, something I have found which helps me to understand Revelation chapter 11 is to realise this is a story. And within this story, there are three characters. And I'd recommend jotting down who these three characters are. Because if we know who the three characters are, it helps explain the story of Revelation chapter 11. So, in Revelation chapter 11... We come across in the first verse, the first chapter. It's quite a different scene from what we've seen from the other trumpets, which was all blood and fire and hail and people dying and etc. This is a different scene that John is introduced to in verse 1. This is the first character. And there was given unto me a reed like a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar. And them that worship herein. Now, this is the first character. The people who are in the temple of God and at the altar. And just like I've got up on the screen there, I think John saw a picture of the temple as it was in Christ's day in AD 70. And he would have seen where the altar was, the holy place, the most holy place. And then outside of that, the courts and the the porticos and the elevation where we said, John... First of all, I want you to measure the people who are in the holy place, in the actual temple. They're the true believers. And what you're going to do is you're going to measure them with a rod or a rabdos And a rabdos was something they used in school at that time. It was for disciplining um, unruly students. So saying, I want you to take that rod and measure out the true believers. There's going to be a time, John, of testing of perfecting, of chastising the true believers. That's the first character. That's very important. And they're also described as the temple of God, the altar, and those that worship in verse 1. Now, there is a second character. This is the second character of Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. But the court, that's the court outside the temple, which is without, leave out, or as it says in the margin, cast them out, get rid of them, and measure it not. Now what we're seeing here is this is the second character. They were they were, in the temple by the altar, but as the vision says, chuck them out. I don't want them by the temple, by the altar anymore. Chuck them out and give them the court of the Gentiles. They can have what's outside the holy place and the altar. They can have that area. Now this is referring to the events that we looked at last week in the second trumpet in Revelation chapter 12 when there was a division, do you remember? Right in the, in, in the 300s when Constantine came to power and he said Christianity is the new state religion there was a split, remember? The woman fled off into the wilderness there was a split between the true believers and the believers who were seeking political power And the things of this world, we could almost say true believers and false believers. There was a split in the 300s. And that's what that's referring to at this time. So our second character is the Christians, the false Christians. People who said they're Christian, but really they've left behind the true teachings of the gospel, the kingdom of God to come. And they place their reliance on the political system. And he says, I've given them that outer court, I've given that to them for a period of 42 months. Now, this is a critical sort of point in Revelation. We're going to talk about it next week. This power, these people who are cast out, this false church, God says, I'm going to give them power for 42 months. Now, that 42 months there was a period, as you can see up on the screen, for 1,260 years. And this is a significant moment. When a religious body of people is given political power. That's a very important event in Revelation. A religious body is given political civil power. And that happened in 533. So, you remember back in 476, Odoacer came through, the Goths. And said, right, the Romans are not ruling this place anymore. The Goths are. Me, Odoacer, I'm going to be the first one ruling over the western part of the empire. And that happened for 100 years or so, 150 years or so. Meanwhile, over in the east, there was an emperor by the name of Justinian. And he saw the Goths ruling in Rome and he thought, I'm not happy about this. Particularly, they were Arian Christians. They didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. He says, I'm not happy about this. So in the 500s, he took a very famous, brilliant general by the name of Belisarius. They marched over to the western part of the empire and they started fighting against the Goths. And in 533, they defeated the Goths, kicked them out, like, fantastic. Now, Justinian says, I'm going to set up a new ruler in Rome. Who would be good for this job? And he decided the man he was going to give power to, to rule the place, was the Bishop of Rome in 533. That's a very significant moment in Revelation. They gave power to this system. You can rule. You false believers, you can rule. You can be in charge of the place. And God says, I'm going to give you ruling authority for 1260 years. That's a long time. 1260 years, you false believers, the church, the Catholic church, you can rule for 1260 years. Now, this story in Revelation chapter 11 is the story of the 1260 years and in particular how that's going to come to the end. So that's the second character, the false church which has been given political authority for 1260 years. So while they're ruling for 1260 years, God says in verse 3, you can rule for 42 months. However, in verse 3, I'm going to give power unto my two witnesses. And they're going to prophesy for 1,203 score days clothed in sackcloth. Now, this is the third character. So while that 1,260 days going, uh, years is going on, God says there's a third character, and I'm going to give power to them. They're going to be described as my two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands and the two prophets in verse 10. And there's going to be 1260 days of standing against. Now, so can you see from that little graph or diagram at the top, that's quite an important diagram. 1260 years of the Catholic Church has political power, but during that time, there would be people standing against them. Now, did you notice that the same period of time but they're described in different ways. Did you notice that? Verse 2, it's 42 months. Verse 3, it was just 1,260 days. And the reason why they're described differently is because they have different start and different end points. So that's quite an important thing. So the starting point of when people would oppose the Catholic Church or the false believers happened in 312, right back at the beginning of Constantine. When Constantine said we're going to make Christianity the state power, there was a group of people already at that time who said this isn't the right thing, we shouldn't be doing this and we saw that last week in Revelation chapter 12. We shouldn't be doing this, this is the wrong thing and so they were going to speak against that power and they were going to do that for 1260 years. They were going to be speaking against them, speaking against them, speaking against them and not only were they going to be speaking against their doctrines, But they were also going to be speaking against the political authority they have and they had power as we saw in verse five and six they had power to fight to stand up to them to torment them to rage against them and and the picture we've got here in revelation chapter 11 is the catholic church ruling for all this time yet gritting their teeth in frustration That they have got people standing against them, opposing them, criticising them, fighting against them and that was to happen for 1260 years and that would end in 1572. So they are the three characters. So what we saw, what you can see is all throughout that period of time of of the two witnesses there were going to be people speaking against the Catholic Church. And it started to culminate in the 1500s with the religious reformation. And in the 1500s, there's a very strong feeling of reformation against the Catholic Church, against the false believers. People like Martin Luther, Wycliffe, Calvin, these sorts of famous people who stood against the Catholic Church and the doctrines that they said. And in particular, in France in the 1500s, Men and women started to read more and more about the writings of these men and they started to start their own churches, Protestant churches. And these people called themselves the Huguenots. And it got to the point where not only were they speaking against the doctrines of the Catholic Church, but they started to fight against them and to rise up against the power that they had. So they, historians they, they estimate by by the 1560s, there were probably half of the French nobility and the aristocracy, probably about half of them, were actually Protestant Huguenots. And by 1562, there were 1,200 Calvinist churches and two million Huguenots in France. And so this sort of animosity started to build up against each other. And what started was the French religious wars and a warring within France You know, the great son of the Catholic Church where they start tormenting the Catholic Church, fighting against them. However, in verse 7, that time of witnessing is going to come to the end. Now look at these particular words in verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against the two witnesses. Will overcome them and kill them. This is the end of the witnessing. You're going to overcome them, sorry, you're going to fight against them, overcome them, and kill them. And that's what happened. And it all started in 1562 to 1598, which was the French religious wars, when the Huguenots, the Protestants, were fighting against the Roman Catholics. And obviously it got to the point where in 1570 there was a key event when there was a peace treaty which was signed between the Catholics and the Huguenots and the Protestants. And King Charles IX, who was the King of France, a Catholic, he wanted peace at that time. He wanted peace. So he reached out to the leader of the Huguenots, a man named Prince Henry of Navarre, and said, look, I want to give my sister-in-law to you in marriage. Let's make peace Let's join our families together. Let's make peace between Catholics and Protestants. So Henry of Navarre came to Paris ready for this marriage to form a peace alliance. So you've got all the Catholics coming to Paris for this marriage and the Protestant leaders coming to Paris for this marriage. And it's a hotbed of seething anger towards each other. And after the wedding. Leading Protestants stayed in Paris to continue discussions with the King of Peace. And one night, after a long day of peace talks, one of the leading Protestants, a man by the name of Admiral de Coligny, was walking home at night and a Catholic assassin took a shot at him and nearly killed him. Now, the Protestants, the Huguenots, are outraged. How dare you try and kill our own one? And when King Charles thought about this, he thought, oh no. What's going to happen? There's going to be reprisals, the Huguenots are going to be crazy. We need to do a preemptive strike. So that very night they got together, they dragged the Protestants out of their beds and slaughtered them. They then rang the bells across Paris and the government launched forward and killed off all the Protestant leaders. And the Catholics, the normal peasants who were watching this, they couldn't believe what was happening. And they were so inspired by seeing the government, the king, and all the army start killing off the Protestant leaders, they themselves took the initiative. And for three days across Paris, they just went crazy, killing every Protestant they could get their hands on. And the authorities just stood back and let it happen. And that started. The wave of violence which slept throughout Paris and throughout France—70,000 people were killed on this day. It's called the Massacre of Saint Bartholomew's Day on 1572. It was a terrible, terrible time. The authorities stood back and let the Catholics come through and kill and wipe out as many Huguenots as they could get their hands on onto. And this reignited the war, the religious wars, which went back and forth for another 26 years. So, in 1572. The beast system, as they're called, makes war against the Protestants with that massacre. And In 1598, the wars came to an end when there was what was described as the Edict of Nantes, when they decided, right, we've had enough, we've had enough. And the king at the time just said, I'm going to issue an edict of toleration towards the Protestants. Catholics and Protestants can get together, we'll be fine. And that lasted until 1685. When the king came along, he had a particular wife who was a very devout, noble Catholic. Her name was Catherine D. Uh, sorry, Madame de Matinon. She was a very devout Catholic. And she started nagging her husband who was the Catholic king, saying, get rid of this Edict of Nantes. I'm sick of the toleration we have for these Huguenots, for these Protestants. Get rid of it. She kept nagging and nagging Nantes until finally he said that's enough, and and he revoked that Edict. And there was a law that went out throughout France that said to the Huguenots, you've got two weeks. Either get out of the country or convert. And that saw this mass migration of Protestants, of people standing against the Catholic Church and its authority, were forced to leave France for England, to go to Germany, wherever they could find any sort of refuge. Now, it's, this is the great thing about the Bible. Look at this in verse 9. The end of the witnessing period in 1572 and onwards. There's really two responses. Look at this in verse 9. And the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see the dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice and make merry and send gifts one to another. Now this is what's happening. It's it's a terrible time. There's been this horrible slaughter of people that have gone through France in 1572. It's been a horrible, horrible slaughter. And the Bible says those that dwell on the earth, those who are part of that Catholic political power, they're going to rejoice. They're going to be very happy with it. Now we're told it's, it's fascinating, fascinating times. The great Catholic stalwart, King Philip of Spain, who was a very devout Catholic, He was a very serious man. When he heard of the massacres happening in France, they said it's the only time he laughed on record when he heard that news. Pope Gregory XIII, when hearing of the slaughter of the Protestants, said, oh, what a wonderful day, and he commissioned three new frescoes to hang in the Vatican. He sent the King of France a beautiful golden rose And people who had played a key part in the slaughter of these people, he struck a medal for them to give, that they could hang around their necks and show their children and march with on Anzac Day. Isn't that hideous, the hideous time? And that's exactly what they said. The people that dwell on the earth, they're going to rejoice because of the torment that these Protestants were giving them. However, this is the great thing God says, however... God says, you think that you can kill off those people who are standing against you? He says, God says, I'm not going to allow you to put those bodies in the graves. Verse 9, I'm not going to allow you to put that spirit totally away. It might be dead, but it's not going to be buried. That spirit of speaking against the Catholics in verse 9, you will not be able to, put that away and so we're told that the dead bodies from that massacre and from that time of witnessing would lie in the streets for three and a half days in verse 9. Now we won't go into all the details because of the time but the three and a half days there is referring to three and a half lunar days or phases which is 105 days which is 105 years. The critical thing is that little diagram below. In 1572, The 1260 years of witnessing came to an end and they were killed off in 1685 when all the French Huguenots were kicked out of France and the Catholics thought we've won brilliant fantastic but God said the bodies of those people who stood against you I'm not going to allow you to bury them away they're not finished yet so for three and a half days in symbol I'm going to allow them just to lie there in the street. I'm going to allow them in the street. Until verse 11, God says, I'm going to revive up that spirit again. I'm going to revive them again. 105 years later, I'm going to revive that spirit again. And that's exactly what happened. 105 years later. And that period of time from 1685 to 1790 is referred to as the time of the Enlightenment. It's the time when that spirit of standing against the Catholic Church would continue on. And in places like Paris and in France, which referred to themselves and saw themselves as the leaders of the Enlightenment, people like um, Voltaire or Rosso or Montesquieu or even Thomas Jefferson and John Locke, these people whose thought that they were enlightened people, they questioned the role of the Catholic Church and the society they were in. And they wanted to be away from a society of faith and of papal power. And they wanted to be ruled by science and reason and logic rather than faith. And so God tells us that in verse 11 that after three and a half days the spirit of life from God would enter into them and they would stand back on their feet. God would revive that spirit just from thoughts and words and actions and he's going to revive it to somebody who is actually going to take action. And this is another example I find in verse 12 of where the Bible just it just perfectly describes exactly what happened in history. And I love this in verse 12. And I heard a great voice from heaven saying, Come up hither. Now we know from the Bible, don't we, that in symbol the heavens are referring to the political powers. And so the political powers call down to this spirit of standing against the Catholic Church and say, come up to the heavens. Come up to the heavens. And it's brilliant because that's exactly what happened in 1789. At the end of the 17th century. France was in turmoil. It was bankrupt. It was basically bankrupt. They were just going through a terrible time financially. Because of the extravagant way of the court of Versailles, the spending was out of control. They had failed harvests, costly wars overseas in the Americas. They were bankrupt, absolutely bankrupt. And the point had got so bad that the commoners and the crying out of the commoners to their government and to their king for some sort of change, for some sort of reformation and the inequality that was in society, the French government at that time said, we are going to call you up to the Estates-General. Now. The Estates General within France hadn't been called up in 175 years. It was a very significant event. And the Estates General was when the three estates of society were gathered together for political reforms. The three three estates were the aristocracy, the church and then everyone else. (laughs) Everyone else made up 98 per cent of the population. The problem was when they came to any sort of reforms within parliament. You voted by estates. So every single time they proposed some change to the tax law or some new constitutional reform, the first two estates, the aristocracy and the church, voted out the common people every time, even though they were 2% of the population. Incredible inequality. Incredible. And because of that, the frustration that was coming on these people who were part of the Enlightenment and wanted change, the frustration was getting so much that they marched out of the Estates-General into a nearby tennis court and they said, we've had enough. We are not leaving until we reform the Constitution of France. And such was the popularity behind this enlightened group of people that the King himself begrudgingly had to accept their authority. And so we're told in verse 13, the same hour was a great earthquake. This is the second earthquake of Revelation, the French Revolution, which started rumblings in 1789. Incredible political earthquake. It's it's an incredible event, which we're still feeling, I believe, the effects of. Two hundred and forty or thirty years later, we are still feeling the effects of the French Revolution. This was a revolution which got rid of the aristocracy, titles, the class system. It removed all of that and it introduced equality, human rights, the will of man, democracy. The society that we live in the moment is because of the fruits of what happened in France in 1790. It was a very dramatic event and it says it was a great shaking. It was a huge shaking of the political world. And that revolution would be pushed throughout Europe. It would be progressed by the Americans. And it's what we have today. It's why the Americans start wars over freedom. They won't handle aristocracy or dictators. It is the will of the people, human rights. And it all came from this event. And, and there's another great detail in verse 13. It says that in the same hour, there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell. And in that earthquake, there were slain, just check your margin there, the names of men, 7,000. Now, what on earth does it mean, the names of men, 7,000? How could they slay the names of men? What a great description by Revelation, the names of men. And this is what happened as the French Revolution continued. Now, obviously, they started a new constitution, And they started pushing that along. The lawyers were involved and arguing over this point or that point, and the common people started to get frustrated. They were still in poverty, they were still suffering greatly. And, And this revolution, this change of the Constitution, had promised so much, and they were getting annoyed that it wasn't getting pushed along quick enough. So, while that happened, in 1793, the Committee of Public Safety was formed by the political party, the Jacobins, and their main lawyer, who was their leader for a period of time, was Maximilian Robespierre. And He was worried that the revolution would peter out. They were under threat of invasion from outside forces. The changes to the constitution were moving too slowly, and he was worried it was going to be derailed by the lawyers. So they took action to save the revolution. And they set up what was called the Revolutionary Tribunal. And they were going to convict and try their enemies of the revolution. So if you were wealthy, if you were in the aristocracy, if you were part of the church, if you had a name or a title, the names of men, you were dragged before this kangaroo court, mostly before a judge, not taking his role seriously. You would have a very brief, quick case. You would be deemed an enemy of the revolution. And then you would be marched out to stand before the National Razor, Madame Guillotine. Out in the square, you would be beheaded. And streams and streams of people went through this time. It was a terrible time. It was called the Reign of Terror. This was when the names of men were slain. Nobody was safe. They estimate in that time of the Reign of Terror, 10,000 people were executed. And in 1793, the Queen, Mary Antoinette, herself was beheaded. Not long after her, her husband, the king, Louis XVI, with their titles slaughtered, cut off by the guillotine. So in 1793, that's the end of the 1260 years. It's the end or the beginning of the end of the political power of the church. And France went through a period described by historians, as the de-Christianisation of France. Incredible incredible time. All the policies of the revolution were targeted against the aristocracy and against the church. In 1789 the tithe system which the church had benefited from was abolished. In 1790 all church property which belonged to the Catholic state was automatically through the signing of a pen, transferred over to the state of France. So if you were part of the clergy, if you were part of the priesthood or a nun or a monk, you were now no longer under the reign of the Pope, but you were an employee of the state. So therefore, you were required to swear an oath to France, not to the Pope. And the Pope said in 1791, sorry, no, you swear allegiance to me not to France and this caused this huge battle between these poor clergy sorry these poor Catholic pre- um, clergy who had to decide whether they were going to side with France or with the Pope and with the reign of terror and what that meant. in 1793 all public worship was forbidden the churches were ransacked. the Gregorian calendar was replaced by the French Republican character all saints days holidays places anything that was referred to by a religious name was replaced by french nationalism and any form of religious garb and dress were outlawed and this was the evolution uh, the revolution which was the beginning of the end of the church's political power and i reckon that all of france's 30,000 priests by the end of the revolution had either resigned been forced into marriage deported or executed. The 40,000 churches that France had were either closed, sold or destroyed. And this revolution spirit, although those reforms were taken back a little bit in the succeeding years, this is the beginning of the end of the political power that the church had. Just as God said, you're going to have it from Justinian for 1260 years, but when it gets to the 1790s, that power is going to be removed, and it was violently removed. And it's described for us here in that sixth trumpet, a great and violent earthquake. It's a sidepost. Now, this is awesome because we started last week in John's Day in eighteen ninety six. We've watched that scroll being unrolled, and we're getting closer and closer and closer to our time. And we've just passed another political landmark that was, what, 230 years ago. We're getting closer and closer to our time. So next week we're going to keep the scroll unrolling and we're going to see the next events as we're moving forward towards the kingdom of God. And we're going to cross over a key little threshold. So far we've looked at things that have happened in the past. We're going to get to the point next week where we stop seeing things we've seen in the past and then a tiny step to see things that happen just in the future, just where we are in Revelation on the way to the return of Christ. Thank you. The purpose of these talks was not to give an individual sort of look at every single symbol and sign and detail, but to try and give a broad overview of the chapters in Revelation and elsewhere so that we can get a firm understanding of what the overview of what it's talking about and sort of build our interest and our understanding of that. So, what we've been looking at so far in the last couple of weeks is. Remember in John when he received the initial vision he was taken up into the heavens and he saw a scroll was handed to the lamb and within that scroll contained the events or the unfolding of history and so that scroll was unrolled and we saw from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 11 the political events unfolding towards the kingdom of God and there's those key sort of Um, markers on the way to the establishment of God's kingdom and their earthquakes. We saw the first earthquake at the end of the seals which was in 312 in the sixth seal when Constantine came along and he changed the empire to Christian. That was a, a great event, a great political shaking. Paganism's out, Christianity's in. And then last week we saw the second earthquake, the second great Political shakening. That was when the French Revolution in the 1789, the 1790s, when the class system in France was abolished and was replaced by the will of the people. That is a very significant event in the history of mankind. The class system gone. This is what we know today. And democracy was really starting to be born in France, and then it was pushed out to the end of the world. Now, you might have noticed, if you come across to Revelation chapter 11, as, as you were reading through Revelation 11 and into that sixth trumpet era, in that sixth trumpet, in the 1260 years of power, there was a person described or an element described in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. It says, When they have finished their testimony, the beast... ...that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and overcome them and kill them. Now you might think yourself, what on earth is this beast that we're introduced to all of a sudden? What's this about? The beast. So we park that thought. And now we can look at Revelation chapter 12 to 6, 16. Sorry, where we're going to have the development and we're going to be shown the historical events and the development of the beast. So... We described it in our first class, and hopefully it's well. We're looking at the same unrolling of history, but we're looking at it from another perspective, similar, perhaps, in a way, to the Gospels, where the Gospel writers are all watching the same event, but they look at it from different angles, and they write different themes that they are trying to transmit. The same thing is in Revelation. Here we have chapter 6 to 11 is political events. And now when we get to chapter 12 to 16... John says, right, I'm now going to show you another theme of history outrolling, and this is going to be the historical events of the beast system, and that's going to be from chapter 12 to chapter 16, and that is going to roll out all the way from 3.12, from the first earthquake, and conclude in God's kingdoms and in the vials. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight, as an overview, the development of and the historical events of the beast system. So we already saw in our first talk in Revelation chapter 12, the birth of the beast. <laughs> that sounds a bit dramatic, doesn't it? The, the beginning of the beast or the falling away. And that's where we had the split within God's ecclesia between the true believers and the false believers. There was that great wonder in heaven, you remember? That woman who was heavy with child and she gave birth to Constantine who would be the champion of the false believers. Because in the time of Diocletian, when the believers were suffering under heavy persecution, they turned and looked to the political heavens. They looked for a political savior and backer, and it gave birth to this man-child Constantine. And this was where there was a split between the true believers and the false believers. And that happened around 312, 313, there was a split. And this is the beginning of the falling away, as it's described in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, when a group of people, or the church, or the Catholic Church, broke away and they just started developing a form of Christianity which departed from the true teachings of the Gospel. Once they were introduced and placed into power in the time of Constantine, it wasn't long before the Trinity, the first elements of the Trinity, were starting to be introduced. When the Holy Spirit was to be added on, worship of Mary, saints, the eminence that's given to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, all these sort of doctrines which are not in the gospel were started to be introduced and the false church was established. This is the birth of the beast in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 13, which we'll look at in a minute, is the two phases of that beast system of the church when it's given political power, and then in Revelation chapter 15 and 16, God's judgment on the beast and the end of its political power. Now that is the overview of those chapters. That's quite important. The birth, the two phases, and then God's judgment and the the end of the political power of the beast. That's how it's outlined from Revelation chapter 12 to um, to 16 so come across um, flick over to Revelation 13 and we'll take a look at we've seen the birth of the beast we did that in the first week now we're going to look in chapter 13 the two phases of the beast now in Revelation chapter 13 an important note to to make we're doing an overview of this chapter is this is the same beast remember that This is the same beast. It's just going through two different phases. Because Revelation 13 is talking about 1260 years of this beast system, but it goes through different phases. Just like me, I've gone through different phases in my life. When I was a teenager, I was desperate to be seen as a surfer. I was surfer Luke, younger. I tried to grow my hair as long as my father would allow. That was my surfer stage. Then I moved on to a different stage where I wanted to be known by something different. I don't know. Let's just say um, um, Luke married to Lara. Phase. I'm different now. I've left my surfing days behind, obviously, and now I'm with three kids. You know, battling with three little boys. It's the same me, but I've just gone through different phases. And we all do that in different life. You know, sometimes we might have a haircut. Go through a different fashion trend, get a new job, whatever it is, we go through different phases, but it's still the same person. And that's the key thing about Revelation chapter 13. It's the same beast, but it's going through different phases. And these are the two phases of the beast. The first phase is the beast rising up out of the sea from verse 1 to 10. And the second phase is the beast coming up out of the earth. This is the second phase that it goes through. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at some of the details because God gives John in symbol some of the details to help him understand what these two phases were like. Now, the first uh, image that John's given is in verse verse uh, 1 to 4 of this beast. He sees as it is, A beast that's rising up out of the sea and its powers that rising up out of the sea of nations. Now this beast here corresponds back to the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. And it is in the form, as it says there in verse 2, of a leopard. It's got seven heads and it's got ten horns. And those seven heads we're later told in Revelation uh, chapter 14... Are symbolic of the seven hills or the seven forms of government that Rome went through, the Roman Empire went through, and the ten horns are symbolic of the ten toes in Daniel's image that would break out of the image. Do you remember? The Roman Empire would sort of break out into the ten toes. Now, importantly, the crowns are are on the horns. So we know that this beast is gone it's sort of it's history or its legacy has been the roman power and now it is coming out into the 10 toes it's entering into a new phase because the crowns are on those horns so they're going into the new phase the crowns are on the 10 toes it is post sort of the roman sort of era and as it's coming up you notice in verse 3 an important little detail was those one of its heads had a wound, a deadly wound, which I've tried to depict there on the screen. It's like it had a slash across the side of one of the face. It was a deadly wound. However, that, he- that wound had been healed. And then we find out in verse 4 that a dragon has now given power to that beast. Now this is a perfect description of this new, of this beast coming out of the sea. So do you remember to our class back last week we saw on the Western Roman Empire as we went through the period of the wind trumpets with the Goths, the big hairy Goths, started to invade, invade and torture the Western Roman Empire and it culminated in 476 when Odoacer came along And he kicked out the Roman rulers and he pronounced himself as a Goth. I rule the Western Roman Empire. And that was the wound that was given to the beast, like a big slash straight across his face. And in 476, that side was eclipsed. That Roman Empire had that deadly wound of the Goths in power. But what happened was, over on the eastern side of the empire... Man by the name of Justinian looked back and saw the Goths ruling, who were Arian Christians, who did not believe in the divinity of Christ, and said, "I'm not happy about this." And he took his great general Belisarius, and they marched over to the west, and they kicked the Goths out of power, and they healed that wound. And then, in verse four, he gave power to the beast. He gave political power to a church, to a church and it says the whole world wondered at that event and that was in 533, a significant moment in history when because there was a power vacuum and Justinian says we got rid of the Goths, now who's going to rule this place and he sees the bishop in Rome, the head of this apostate church of the falling away of the believers says I know you, I'm going to give you political power. And that power would last for twelve hundred and sixty years. Now, this is the beast rising up at the sea. This is the first phase that a dragon who is just in in the east has given power to the west. And here's the little map of the little uh, map that helps to explain, I hope, this phase of power. So in five thirty three to seven fifty-two is what they call the Byzantine Papacy. The papacy, the ruling power of the Catholic Church, they're supported by the East. And they started out and their kingdom was pretty small. As you can see there, up in the green on the left, they were pretty small. That was the Byzantine papacy. And what happened over time was they kept relying on the emperor in the East for military support and help. Now we know, don't we, from Revelation chapter 9, with the woe trumpets that out in the East They're battling against the Muslims, the Saracens, against the Ottomans, the Turks, the Mongols. So they can't provide military support to the Bishop of Rome anymore. So he starts looking around thinking, who's going to give me military support? We're just a church here. We need some police. We need an army to back us. And so that's where he started to look elsewhere. And he was supported particularly By the kingdom of the Franks under Pepin and then later by the great king called Charlemagne. And we'll leave that point just there. They started to support the bishop in Rome. He needs his political power somewhere. He gets it from the dragon and he gets it from the Franks and they're going to support his kingdom. And when he's got the Franks there with him, that's when their territory and their influence starts to grow. And that's the first phase of The beast. And there are two little elements which help describe what this sea beast is like. The first one in verse 6 is that they blaspheme against God. And the second one is in verse 7, they make war with the saints. They blaspheme against God. And it's interesting, I think it's a good little note to write in your margin, a good companion quote with the sea beast is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul describes the falling away, the apostasia, as he calls it, the apostasy. And the rising up and the revealing of the man of sin, the bishop of Rome. And look at what this man of sin, the bishop of Rome, the false church, look what he says. He says, there shall come a falling away first. And the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition, who will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. He will sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is what this beast system is going to do. They're going to blaspheme against God. They're going to put themselves in this big cathedral and they're going to call it the temple of God. And they're going to say to others, I am a God. I am God in his place. And this is exactly what the Catholic Church did. Now, I've put a selection of quotes up here. This is not an exhaustive list, trust me. From the Catholics' own writings of how they see themselves, and in particular, the Pope himself. Look what they say. The Pope and God are the same. So he has all power in heaven and earth. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man. But as it were, God and the vicar of God, the Roman Catholic Church has never erred, nor will it, according to the scriptures, ever erred. And Gregory Seventh, again, all princes should kiss the Pope's feet only. Well, the, <laughs> the arrogance of these people. The Pope is of great authority and power that he can modify, explain or interpret even divine laws. He can modify divine teachings. The Pope can modify divine law since his power is not of man but of God. And he acts as a vice-regent of God upon earth. And this is what this beast system is like. They blaspheme against God. The Pope says, I can speak in the place of God. And if I decide that I need to change things that are written within the Bible, I have the authority to do it. That is blasphemy against God. God saw that and said, that's blasphemy to speak those things against me. That's the arrogance of the church. And that is not an exhaustive list of the things that they pronounce about themselves and the Pope, and about themselves and how they see the Pope. And they are given political power for 42 years. Now, the next phase we have is in verse 11. And it says that there another beast is coming up out of the earth, and it's like a lamb. And this beast coming out of the earth is in a new phase, and it's got two horns, and those horns represent ruling powers. So now, there are two sides to this new beast. Previously, the beast had relied on the dragon or another military power to prop it up. To have its back but now it's got two horns it's now a new military power and this is the new phase that the beast goes through from 799 from 1806 that Charlemagne the Frankish king started to set them up and this is the birth of the Holy Roman Empire that went from 799 to 1806 and their territory morphed over time but it sort of entered up, ended up mainly around that central Europe role which have hided there in green where you had an emperor who was ruling out of Vienna a lot of the time, and a pope who was ruling in Rome. And these were the two dominant powers. For nearly a thousand years they ruled, the emperor and the pope. And there's two things by which this beast that comes out of the earth is known for. First of all, in verse 13 and 14, it tells us that they deceive the world with great wonders. They're going to deceive the world and I think this is typical of the Catholic Church and any sort of reading you do into Catholic history they rely so much on their miracles and signs and wonders they are there in their thousands of their relics which hold special powers of their statues that cry and bleed of their thousands and thousands of saints that they have who performed miracles which people pray to and worship now. Did you know that one of the um, prerequisites to be a saint or to be uh, ordained as a saint within the Catholic Church is that you, upon your death, have had to have performed at least two miracles. So, for example, one, one um, person who they're trying to put through, ordain into sainthood is uh, Pope John Paul II. And so there are claims that people have prayed to John Paul in heaven and he has healed them of their disease or cancer or whatever the case is. And because of that, it is attributed that they are working miracles in the earth and so, therefore, they are a saint to which you can pray to and worship to and light candles, etc. And the Catholic history is full of this rubbish, signs, lying, wonders, miracles, all of them, flying monks, you name it, it's, it's all there, healing, um, all sorts of things and relics, all sorts of rubbish. It is known throughout time that they peddle this sort of stuff and people are still doing it in the world, particularly in Asia and South America. They are all over this sort of stuff. And the second thing is in verse 16 and 17 that this um, that this system, verse 15, would cause people to have the mark of the beast on them. Put a mark, sorry, verse 16, to receive a mark on them. Now this is a symbolic thing, and it's a contrast to the sealing of God in the forehead of the believers. The contrast is the mark of the beast and what this is saying is that they are wanting people to make some sort of formal declaration that they are part of the Catholic Church and if they don't make that or receive this mark as it is, you will be unable to buy or sell or trade and this is the power that they had. I think I was trying to sort of
0: think about a um, a modern day example. The Church will insist that those two people are
1: baptised into the Catholic Church, otherwise you can't get married in 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 our Church. That's just a small taste of that. You take that back to the times of the Holy Roman Empire. If you weren't christened, confirmed and regular attending their Mass, you would be branded as a heretic and therefore excommunicated. And that meant that no one within the community of your town or city or whatever would be able to lease a home to you, trade with you, do business with you. You would be shut out. You would be excommunicated. You would be labelled a heretic. And the Pope would do this to common people and to nobility. It would drive them absolutely crazy. You couldn't do anything unless that man told you so. That's the power that they would have over these people. And so finally, in that chapter, in, in chapter 13, as he's finishing off that chapter, he's, uh, John says, uh, John's shown in verse 18, I'm going to give to John almost a, a key identifier of this beast, in, in case we've missed it. In verse 18, he says, Here is wisdom, let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. Now that's important. Count the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man. And the number is 603 score and six, or 666. Now, this is a key identifier to this beast system. Count the number of him. So, doing some research on this, and Brother Peirce in his book, I think he summarized it well. He said, back in in pagan countries, it, it was the custom to designate some of their pagan gods. By the total number of the numerical number value of the letters that make up its name. Irenaeus who discoursed with Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. He's mentioned in the New Testament. He declared that the name signified Latinos. And so it is. The suggestion's been put forward. I think it's quite a valid one. That the name is in the Greek Latinos, which means Latin kingdom. And if you take the numerical value for each of those letters, which is something apparently that they did in those times, it adds up to 666, 666, the number of the beast. It was a key identifier. It's almost as if you get to Revelation 30 thinking, who on earth is this? And John said, I'm going to give you a value number of it, count the number of it, count the number of And it shows how everyone was desired in verse 8, uh, 13 verse 8. Everyone that dwelt on the earth had to worship that beast system. You had to worship them. And and then in contrast, in chapter 14, we won't go into any detail, but in contrast is those who have God's name written in their foreheads. And, And chapter 14 makes it clear, this beast system, which was so dominant for 1260 years, It's not going to last. I promise you, it's not going to last. And chapter 14 shows this beast system, the destiny of it is to be destroyed by Christ. Now, let's come across to chapter 15 and 16. Chapter 15 and 16 is the final wrath of God. Look at chapter 15 and verse 1. John says that he saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, its seven angels having the seven last plagues, For in them is filled up the wrath of God. And then we're given, John's given symbolically a picture of the temple in heaven. The end of the chapter in chapter 7 there. And out step seven angels who have seven golden vials. Like those pans that you go panning in to get gold at Sovereign Hill. Like a big bowl like that that's gold and it's full of the wrath of God. And that's handed to these seven angels who now walk out of heaven symbolically. And they are ready to pour the final wrath of God upon the beast system. So when we come into chapter 16, which was read for us, we have the first five vials are poured out. Now we're not going to really go into much detail about these first five vials, but the angels come forward and they are pouring these vials on, verse 2, those who have the mark of the beast, and verse 10, verse 10 the seat of the beast and five vials are chucked down onto the earth onto the people who have the mark of the beast and those that live in the area of the seat of the beast. This is God's judgments on the Holy Roman Empire and that's exactly what happened in the Napoleonic Wars of 1803 to 1805. So when we continue on the history from last week, do you remember? In the second earthquake, the French Revolution came along and kicked out the Catholic Church in a very violent, dramatic way. That was one of the effects of that. In a very violent, dramatic way. They punished the Catholic Church, and that is the beginning of the end of the beast system. And Napoleon would come along and finish them off. Because what was happening in the 1790s? That France was in absolute was in turmoil, it was in chaos was in chaos. And one of the threats they had was from the surrounding countries of Europe. They looked at what was happening in France where they'd kicked out the monarchy, they'd kicked out the church and thought, uh-oh, that's not good. <laughs> if, if that comes into our country, we're in big trouble. I'm gonna lose my position, we're gonna lose all our taxes, we do not want that. We need to invade France and put King Louis back on the throne. And so what they did was they started to invade particularly from Austria, etc. So the French needed to fight outside and on their borders to try and save the revolution. And that was where this man Napoleon, this Corsican general, this arrogant but sort of military genius rose up and was fighting to hold back these invaders and then started to push out further beyond their, their borders. And, and people have observed that Napoleon's great successes came within the Holy Roman Empire. Now, I've sort of uh, tried to map that up on the screen there. Those uh, red stars are his um, probably his major victories, and the white stars are his failures. And in particular, in Moscow uh, um, and in Russia. So any time he tried a campaign outside of Central Europe, it was pretty much a failure. He tried to go down to Egypt to try and follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and find a passage down to India. What happened was the English navy destroyed his navy and he basically left his army for dead by the pyramids and snuck back to France. He tried to take Russia, and although he did have some victories in Borodino and in Moscow, in 1812 he retreated and basically left his army to die in the snow. He tried again once he was exiled to Elba to come back and to raise the French up, but the English and their coalition defeated him at Waterloo. He had no success unless it was in the Holy Roman Empire, because that's where God wanted to be. That's where the wrath of God was poured out against the Holy Roman Empire. That's where he had his great success, where he imprisoned the Pope in Rome, where he kicked out the Holy Roman Emperor in Vienna. These were the great successes that he had. And they're the first five vials which describe described for us um, from Revelation 16, verse 1 to 11, but we're not going to be looking in any detail tonight because I want to concentrate in our last 25 minutes or so On the sixth vial. Because once we get to the sixth vial, we are ticking closer and closer and closer and closer to our time. To our time. We're slowly following the unveiling of history towards the return of Christ. We are getting closer and closer and closer to our time. It's so interesting reading through Eureka. And 13 Letters on the Apocalypse, written by Robert Roberts. Napoleon to them was not that long ago. It was almost recent history. It's like, almost like World War I history to them. It was not that long ago. And we're now going to come into the period, in verse 12, of the sixth vial. It says there in verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates and the water thereof was dried up. Ah, Revelation chapter 9 verse 14 where we have the sixth trumpet part A. Do you remember? And God was using the the river Euphrates to hold back those four angels. Do you remember? There was the Mongols, the Ottomans, those Turkish powers. He was holding them back, and he let them loose and they marched in forward and in the end of what was they set up the Ottoman Empire. So the river here in Revelation 16, the river Euphrates is referring to an empire, a power, and in particular it's referring to the Ottoman Empire, which really sort of got their tea started in 1453 at the fall of Constantinople when the Ottomans came to power. And what this is telling us in the sixth file is there's going to be a great sign of that empire, like a river, is going to slowly start drying up. It's going to slowly start receding back again. Now, History shows us exactly how this happened a slow receding and drying up of the empire. In 1566 this is the height of the Ottoman Empire under Suleiman the Magnificent. What a great name. Suleiman the Magnificent. This is the height and the extent of the Ottoman Empire in 1566. And Slowly by slowly that empire started to receive. In 1830, they lost Algeria to the French. In 1832 was Greek independence. In 1878, the Romanians and the Serbians claimed independence. In 1881, Tunisia was taken by the French. In 1882, the British took Egypt. In 1908, The Bulgarians declared independence. In 1911 they lost Libya to the Italians. What a great shame that would be. In 1912 was the Albanian independence and slowly by slowly by slowly the extents of that empire start to recede just like a river slowly slowly driving up and Eureka! Brother Thomas was so excited about this because they could see it happening in their day slowly starting to recede and recede and recede till we get to 1914, 1913, at the start of the First World War. This is the extent of the Ottoman Empire. And World War I is a very significant event in the drying up of the river Euphrates of the Ottoman Empire. World War I was, it was a horrible war, as all world wars are. This was a horrific war. It was the war that ended empires and the rise of nationalism. It was a time when the military um, machines started to be fully industrialized. And we, and we well know of the hundreds of thousands of young men who were slaughtered in France, and even our own men in Gallipoli. There's no heroes. There's no noble victories in World War I. It's just mud, destruction, and slaughter. It was a horrible, horrible thing, however, In the purpose of God, there were some key events that happened with the drying up of the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Allies were mostly bogged down, we know, on the Western Front. But after the withdrawal from Gallipoli of the Anzac troops, that's the Australians and New Zealanders, that's us, down into Egypt, their forces were reinforced by Anzac troops who were able to help in a push through the Sinai and up into Palestine. Now, this is really interesting for us because this is where Australia is involved. In the Sixth Vile, the Anzac troops played key against fixed machine gun positions, which helped them capture the key town and water points of Beersheba. Exciting times as they started to push that Ottoman power to recede that empire. They helped push it up and up and up. And in 1917, The Ottomans evacuated Jerusalem in 1918, which is shown in a picture up there. In 1918, the Allied troops defeated three Ottoman armies and they took Damascus and Aleppo. And then finally, in 1918, was something which was described as the Armistice of Mudros, which was the defeat of the Ottoman Empire. Their army was demobilized and the Allied troops Marched into Constantinople. And after the war in about 1918, the Allied troops started to carve up their victories and to hand out all the different territories which they had, con- uh, they had conquered. And in the Treaty of Severus, they decided that the old Ottoman Empire, in particular Anatolia, the old Asia Minor, was going to be occupied and handed to the French, the British, the Greeks, and the Italians. And the Greeks, Went on their ships and started to assemble their troops in a bit of a land grab, in particular in the ancient port of Smyrna. And this fired up the Turks themselves. This fired them up. So in 1919 and 1920, under the man Ataturk, very famous man in Turkish history. This fired the nationalistic spirit of the Turks and they fought back against the Greeks. They pushed them out in the War of Independence. They eventually got rid of the Ottomans and they set up in 1922 the modern Turkish state that we have here today. The Ottoman Empire was finished. It was shrunk, 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 shrunk shrunk until it's gone. The Ottoman Empire is gone. It's no more. And we have the national state of Turkey. That's what we've got today. In 1922. A hundred years ago, that's not that long ago. A hundred years ago, this happened in verse 12. That empire shriveled and dried up to nothing. Gone in 1922. That's one of the key events of the sixth vial. So it says there, it dried up, that the ways of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now we're not going to talk about that this week. We're going to talk about that next week. But one of the key things is, the second key thing of the sixth vial is, John saw, in verse 13, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, this is the great thing where you can put in your margin. We have now entered, in verse 13, this is our time. We have now entered into our time. When there's going to be, a social, worldwide movement. We are in our time. That's us right there in verse 13 in the sixth vial. This is our time. And John says that he saw three unclean spirits. Now spirits, I won't go into any detail on that, but spirits, we know from of John chapter 4, verse 1, they are used to describe teachings or doctrines or philosophy. And they're unclean, which means they are not holy. They are not helping us to draw closer to God. They are unholy things. There will be these unholy, unclean philosophies that are going to come. And they are like frogs. It's an interesting way to describe it, isn't it? Three unclean philosophies that will be like frogs. Now, now in the Bible... Particularly in the plagues, the frogs were known as corrupting influences. They're described in the Psalms as one of the plagues which actually killed off the Egyptians. Was the frogs? They're a corrupting influence, and we know that animals in Revelation, because they're symbols, refer to peoples and nations, and the frogs in particular were symbolic of the French people. And there's been historical proof made that right back to the early times of the Frank kingdoms in the 500s, they used the heraldic symbol of the frogs as the people of France. It was Clovis, who was the first king of the Franks, who used the frogs as his emblem. Because of the marshy areas of Paris of where they came, which had a lot of frogs, they used the frog as their emblem. Now it's interesting when you go through time, with the French, it was the nobility who started to adopt the fleur-de-lis. But the people had the herald symbol of the frogs. And even today, we still know the frogs. We know the French are regarded as the frogs. This is their language. We're, I don't know, whatever we are, <laughs> kangaroos, the New Zealanders are Kiwis, the British are lions. That's what they like to think anyway. French frogs. It's a well-known thing. They're the frogs. So it says there's going to be three which are like frogs coming from this area. Now, this was the croaking of the frog spirit which came out of the French Revolution, of the time of Enlightenment. They had the three spirits or the three catch cries of the French Revolution. Liberty, equality and fraternity. This was the cry from the time of the Enlightenment. Liberty, the right to live without oppression or restrictions equality i have a right to be treated as an equal and fraternity the spirit of a shared brotherhood that we all have now, now when you, when you look at those things on the surface you think well how is that unclean how are they unclean surely those spirits and that sentiment and that philosophy they're good they're noble things and and there's a good intention behind liberty, equality, fraternity. Perhaps we would agree with that. However, when you read up of the birth of those three philosophies from that based on the early tenets of humanism, these are humanistic sentiments. And the problem with humanism. Is It is a promotion of man and all his ideals and rationality and logic and reason and science and observation to the deliberate exclusion of God. That's what humanism is. And the catch cry of humanists today is, I am a good person. I will do good in this world without God. And that's what these things mean, liberty, equality, fraternity. They are all pushing that to the exclusion, deliberate exclusion of God. It's all about solving mankind's problems without God. And the spirit of humanism is rife in our world today, doesn't it? Human rights, tolerance, social justice, democracy, freedom, gender equality, racial equality. All of those are the tenets of human rights and humanism, which is solving the world's problems without God. They all seem like great noble sentiments. But they are an unclean spirit. They're not from God. They are without God. And so we're told here in in, in Revelation 16 verse 13 that these three unclean spirits are going to come out of, interestingly, the mouth of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. And these unclean spirits, verse 14, are going to gather the whole world to the great day of God Almighty. We won't go into any detail, but just mark it down. The dragon is the military power, remember, that supported the beast in the early days. That's the power in Eastern Europe, in Constantinople. The beast is the powers that were in Central Western Europe, the old stomping grounds of the Holy Roman Empire. And the false prophet, well, a prophet is someone who speaks God's words... A false prophet is someone who pretends they're speaking God's words but really have left God behind. They are not speaking God's words but they claim to be. And I would say that the dominant mouthpiece proclaiming to speak on God's behalf in the area of Eastern Europe and Central Europe is the Catholic Church and their leader, the Pope. So you've got these dominant areas of Eastern Europe, Central Europe, are going to be sprouting out the unclean frog spirits which are going to gather the world to the great day of God Almighty. Now that hasn't quite happened yet. So that's why I'm saying that is now in our time because that hasn't quite happened yet but those spirits have gone out from that area of the world to gather people down to the great day of God Almighty. Now we're not going to go into much more detail about that we'll save that for next week but here's a fascinating thing in verse 15 that while John is carefully noting these things down he's looking at the dragon and the beast he's noting down the frog-like spirits and as he's writing those things down carefully observing he's interrupted and I think he's interrupted by Jesus himself in verse 15 he says John I'm coming I'm coming and I'm coming as a thief blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame John I'm coming I'm coming once you've seen that Ottoman Empire dried up and you've seen those spirits go out into the world to gather people down to the great day of God Almighty I'm coming John I'm coming. And I imagine that he grabs John and almost shakes him like this. I'm coming, John. It's going to be like a thief. And blessed are the people who watch and keep their garments. We won't turn it up, but that's an echo. Back to Revelation chapter 3, to the letter to Sardis. Where there were people who who had a name that they had a vibrant faith, but they didn't. Their works were not perfect before God. And they needed to hold fast to what they had and repent and change. And they needed to value the garments that our Lord Jesus Christ gives us. Just like when the priests went into service in the tabernacle, they were given... A beautiful white garment and priestly clothes as they went into service in the tabernacle. They were symbolic of the office that they had of serving God and the relationship they had with God. Likewise, when we are baptised, we are in Christ and symbolically we have put on a garment. And Christ says, keep that garment. Look after it. Wash it when you need to. Use it as it needs to be used value and treasure that garment you have, that relationship that you have in Christ because I'm coming, I'm coming and I want to see you wearing that garment and I don't want to see your shame. And we're going to conclude tonight in verse 16 that we're told that those unclean spirits come down And they gather them into a place which is called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. The last event of the sixth vial. Armageddon. The only time in the Bible that that word Armageddon appears. And the suggestion that has been made, which I think is a good one and sound... That that Hebrew word Armageddon is made up of three Hebrew words, armor Gay and Don, which means a heap of sheaves, valley, judgment. That when you put them together, the word Armageddon means in English translated a heap of sheaves in a valley for judgment. And once again, I rely on Brother Peirce. He makes the point, that the word Armageddon is expressive. It's not a literal place necessarily, but it's a symbol representative of the swift, overwhelming judgment and the destruction that shall overtake all those who are gathered together against God's people. Armageddon. It's a destruction. Like they did back in those days. They would gather the wheat together. They would bind up the sheaves. They were ready for judgment. It's ready for judgment. God has been preparing this throughout time. Getting them ready to this point here in the sixth vial. This is our time in the sixth vial. Getting them ready for judgment. Now I'm going to leave it there for tonight. Because we're going to have to come back next week. And we're going to leave Revelation behind. And we're going to go to the other prophecies of the Bible. To pick up. What's been happening since 1922 when the Ottoman Empire dried up all the way through to the return of Christ, the judgment and then we're going to get to Armageddon itself.